undoubtedly one of the most recognized and beloved prayers in all of Scripture, happens to be the one that Jesus directly taught his disciples, which we call the Lord's Prayer. And there's something remarkable and profound about this really brief and short prayer we find in Scripture. It comes right after what Jesus instructs us in terms of how to pray and how not to pray, which we talked about last week. Jesus instructed us there not to pray like the hypocrites and not to pray like the Gentiles, the pagans. He taught us some very important things about how we are to come to prayer with sincere hearts, not with vain repetitions and not with many words, telling us something about the God who hears our prayers, that he knows what we have need of even before we open our mouths and ask. And then he responds, Pray then like this. So we're going to take a couple of weeks to study this particular prayer uh, because it contains something very powerful for us to understand what it is we should be praying for. So as you're there in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 9 through 15. Hear the words of the living God. Pray then like this, our Father, In heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are the words of the Lord. Now, in our Baptist Catechism, question 106 instructs us this way. What rule has God given for our direction in prayer? The answer, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, you know, we've been saying through our teaching here, the best way to pray according to the will of God is to pray the Word of God. That's where the will of God is contained for us because the content of our prayer matters. It's important. We're taught to pray according to the will of God because that is the prayer the Lord hears and answers. And he promises to answer everything prayed according to the will of God. So our continual exhortation is to you, pray the word of God. You can never go wrong praying the word of God. Don't just pray whatever comes to your mind. Don't just pray whatever fanciful thing and imagination you might have about what you think you need to pray for. We already know we have a weakness in prayer. Romans chapter 8 tells us that's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us in our intercession. We do not know what to pray for as we ought to. But when we come to God's word and we see his word revealed to us, well, we pray that. And when we pray that, he answers and responds. Now, we have some very direct teaching from our Lord here as concerns prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But what is this thing? Is this a prayer we're supposed to repeat word for word? Pray it verbatim? Or do we find in this some pattern of prayer that Jesus was instructing his 
disciples. Now we find this in two of the Gospels. So this gives us the indication that Jesus taught this prayer in different settings in a variety of times. This was one of the teachings he often repeated. We come to the Sermon on the Mount sometimes and we read that and go, well, that's just one preaching Jesus did. But the, the teachings contained therein and the truths he talked about there, he probably taught those many, many times over. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 11, it's one of those times Jesus was teaching on prayer. In fact, what we find there is Jesus was praying and his disciples were with him. And after he's done praying, the disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. It's, it's indicating here, like, repeat these words after me. You want to know how to pray? Repeat after me. You ever done that with your kids? Teaching them to pray, you teach them to repeat what you're saying, right? So, kind of sounds there like Jesus is giving a form to be repeated. The exact words to say when you pray. Now, in Matthew's account, which we just read there, Jesus is teaching this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But there he doesn't say, when you pray, say. He says, pray then like this. In fact, some translations render this, pray in this manner or pray in this way. So not as words to repeat like word for word, but as a framework, as a pattern, as an outline of prayer and for prayer. So I think when we look at these two particular accounts, both uses of the Lord's Prayer are in mind. It is a prayer we can repeat word for word. In fact, we know that many believers pray the Lord's Prayer every day, repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer as they are found in Scripture. It forms the liturgy of the church. It's a common thing to recite in in many congregations. The Lord's Prayer is one to repeat word for word as Jesus instructed his disciples. But it is also a pattern for prayer. It's an outline for prayer. And both of those uses have served the church well from the very beginning. The Lord's Prayer is really a simple prayer. It is concise. It is comprehensive. It is simple. A child can remember it. Isn't that how you catechize your children? How do you pray? Well, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. It's exactly what Jesus instructed us to pray. It's concise. It's short. It's pithy. In most of your translations, it's 50 plus words. So think about that. Sometimes we go on and on and on in prayer, right? Repeating the same things. Doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus instructed us not to do. Don't pray like the pagans who repeat so many words. And then he gives us an example here in prayer. And it's just a handful of words. But it's comprehensive. In its brevity, there's something so profound. Like a whole volume is said with just a few words. I wish I could speak that way. You probably wish the same thing. A few words, but it says so much. Contains so many truths about the Christian faith. So many things about the character of God in a handful of words. And it contains the main things that you and I are to ask God for. Its structure is very simple. I break it down into really three parts. Some commentators make it a little more complicated, I think. But three parts generally here. The opening, the prelude, the preface to this prayer, our Father in heaven. It's what we're going to focus on today. 
The bulk of the prayer is the petitions. Six petitions are found there. Three, we can break that up into two categories. God's concerns and our concerns. God's concerns are what you find uh, by the pronoun uh, your that Jesus employs there, his concerns. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our concerns we can look at as broken down by the use of the pronoun us. The needs that uh, we have, the concerns that we have, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how the structure is broken down. And then there is a third, which you're like, where's the third? Because it seems like there's a part that's familiar to the Lord's Prayer that is not found there in what we just read. Right? What is that? For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. Why is that missing? Well, you'll have to wait till I come to that part <laughs> in the next week or two. Um, but it's not included in our reading of the ESV. It's found in the King James translation uh, of this particular passage. But it is omitted from most Bible uh, versions. And I'll explain that when we get there. But I'm going to include it. Uh, in our teaching of the Lord's Prayer. I think not only is it fitting, uh, I, I think I'm in good company with the early church fathers uh, who included uh, this part of the prayer in it. Uh, most of the early church considered this to be prayer. Uh, one of the earliest documents of the first century of teaching in the Christian church outside of Scripture, the Didache, contains this portion, this praise, this concluding praise in the formulation of the Lord's Prayer. So uh, we're going to use it, and I think, it's, I think it's important to have it as part of it. Uh, but it's okay if you exclude it. Obviously, you can see some Bible manuscripts don't contain that, all right? But today we're going to focus on the preface, the prelude of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. We're going to look at that in two parts. First, Our Father. The prelude to this prayer immediately shows us to whom we are addressing our prayers. It's important. Normally when we write a letter or we type out an email, I don't know, I haven't handwritten a letter in a long time and put it in the mail. It's usually, you know, formulated in the context of an email, right? But we address it to dear so-and-so, right? That's whom this letter is for. Well, this prayer immediately tells us whom we are addressing this prayer to. It brings immediate focus to our prayer. It identifies the perspective in prayer. To pray our Father sets the tone, the mood for the whole of our prayer. Most importantly, it identifies our relationship with the one to whom we are praying. Typically, that's not found in the way. Now, if you're writing to your mother or to your father or to your sister, you might say, dear mom, dear dad. Dear so-and-so, right? It, there's, there's an identification in relationship there. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray then like this, our Father. We pray to our Father. And it's noteworthy here to know that Jesus doesn't use here the singular, my Father. In all of his teachings, he's referring to my Father, my Father, In John's gospel, how many times does he repeat that phrase, my father, in his own prayer? 
to the Father, my Father. But here, there's a switch. In this whole teaching where he's contrasting the righteousness of, of the Pharisees, right? In their, in their giving, in their praying, and in their fasting, he refers to God as our Father. And here, specifically in his teaching our prayer, it's about our Father. There is a communal reality to this prayer that goes beyond our personal understanding sometimes of prayer. We just think it's something, it's just me and God. He's my personal Father. And Jesus, in his teaching his disciples, says, our Father, our Father. It's communal. Isn't it interesting, right? We know that when God saves us and rescues us, he places us into his family. We don't go at this alone. There's no such thing as a Christian's personal faith with him and God outside of the family of believers, outside of the church. And Jesus is making that so clear in this prayer. He is our father. Yes, you can say he's personally my father, but it's never outside of the reality of the community of faith. That means that this prayer, whether it's word for word or 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 as a pattern for prayers also to be prayed in community with other believers. We're praying with and we're praying for our fellow believers. And that's important. But in, in this aspect of him referring to God as our Father, there is a depth of intimacy that we have, that we get to enjoy with the God of all creation. How so? And it is in a way that is not cannot be said generally of all of the people in God's creation. But one that we enjoy and one that we have, a reality that you and I can call him our father because of the gift of adoption. We have been adopted into the family of believers by God as his children because of Christ. He is our father. We can call him our father. John wrote in John chapter 1, 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who's the him? It's Christ, right? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And this is important. Not just anyone can call God our Father. Only those who have received him and believed in Jesus Christ, the one whom God, the Father, has sent. And the only way we become a child of God with the right to call him our Father is by virtue of a spiritual birth. Just because you were born as a human being does not give you the right to call him Father and does not make him your Father in the sense that the Scriptures are talking about Here, without a spiritual birth, you are not a child of God. It is not right to say, oh, all of creation are children of God. It's not what Scripture teaches us. Not everyone can call God Father who has not been born of the Spirit, who has not been born of the will of God. You cannot call God your Father. It's only through Christ alone that you and I have access to the Father and become children of God and can call Him our Father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
He's the only point of access. He's the only door we can walk through. He's the only one that we can believe in and have salvation and life, eternal life, and have access to God and call Him our Father and the right to call Him our Father. It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that we receive the spirit of adoption and become children of God. Paul writes that in Galatians chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 8, it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Of God. It's only by the new birth. It's only by being born again, born of the Spirit, that you and I can become children of God. And John also writes in his letter to the church in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Listen to that. There's a special kind of love that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's not automatic. It's just not because you exist on this earth. There's a special kind of love. Now, God has a general kind of love for all of humanity. That is the, the common grace of God that he shows in this, to, to the world at large. But there is a special particular love he has for his elect children. What he writes in John chapter 1. To those who did receive him, to those who did believe him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Now, It's for those who he's brought into relationship with himself through Christ. Prayer begins with, and prayer is possible because of that special relationship. Now, can anyone pray? Sure. Can anyone pray and be heard by the Father and can call him his Father? No. No, that's not what Scripture teaches us here. So we come to him as children to a Father who loves us and is ready, willing, and able to help us because he is our Father and we are His children through Christ Jesus. Now, the fact that he is our father tells us some things about the nature and character of God. First of all, he's a father means he's a person. He's not some impersonal force. He's he's not a spiritual aura. He's just not something out there that we pray to, right? He is the God of this universe. He's a person. Because he's our father, he's also accessible. Just like any good father is to his children. Children should have access to their father, shouldn't they? They should not be afraid to come to their father. He's our father. That means he hears us. He is attentive to the pleas of his children. We can say that we learn from our father is that he cares. He is concerned. For the needs of his children. He's concerned with our troubles. He's interested in them. We can say that our father replies. We can expect not only that God hears and cares. We can expect a reply from our father. Our father provides. He's always disposed to meet our needs. Just as a loving father. Meets the needs of his children. And our father protects Like any good father instinctively protects his children, so our Heavenly Father does with us. Now, there is a difference, though. While our earthly fathers are imperfect and weak and flawed in many ways, our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, Your Heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't that good news? You know, a lot of people struggle with this concept of God as Father because 
They look maybe at their earthly fathers. Maybe they, their earthly fathers sinned against them, maybe neglected them, abused them in different ways. And it's hard for them to see God as our father. And so that relationship feels strained as a result of that. But Jesus says, no, no, your heavenly father is not like your earthly fathers. He's perfect. He's perfect in righteousness. He is good. He's good. So we can pray to him as our father and come to him that way. But notice, nowhere in scripture are we instructed to pray to lesser beings. Like angels. You'll not find any prayers to angels in the scripture. You'll not find any prayers to anyone called a saint in scripture. Now, hopefully through our time together in our 21 days of prayer, praying through Ephesians, we've come to the conclusion that guess who are the saints of God? We are. There's no special elite class of Christian called a saint. We're all the holy ones. We're all saints because of Jesus Christ. It isn't because we are altogether holy, but positionally in Christ we are. We are being sanctified. We are increasingly becoming what we already are. That's another message, okay? But we're never instructed in, in, in Scripture to pray to saints, to pray to angels, or to a mother, or to Mary. Nowhere are, do we find that. We are to pray to our Father, Listen, the fatherhood of God is not some side teaching or doctrine of Scripture. It is central. And we don't get to cast it aside because the prevailing winds of culture are like, nah, you know, gender is not important. Male, there's neither male nor female. You know, it's, 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 it's neutral. Or because we want to, to prop up some aspect of gender equality. Now, this is important. Jesus isn't likening God and saying he is a father like human fathers. That is not what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't use a human analogy of fatherhood to try to describe the fatherhood of God. It's quite the opposite. God's fatherhood is not like ours, but in some way our fatherhood is like his. He's the OG. He's not patterning his fatherhood after, oh, you know, I kind of created this fatherhood thing. I, bet, I guess I better now identify as a father so that they can understand something about fatherhood. Nope. He's the original, the one which you and I model after. His is perfect. Ours is flawed. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 and 15, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is the supreme father upon whom all fatherhood is based upon. So he provides the pattern for fatherhood, not the other way around. This is why we can call upon him as father, because he is. He's not mother, and he's not anything else. He is father. He's our father. There's been some foolish people out there that refer to God as our mother. It's not biblical at all. Now, there's many reasons they do that. Well, you know, they, well, God is spirit, so they don't want to now kind of create him after the image of man. But God has not revealed himself to us as mother. There's some who want to pray and use that language, our mother, because they want to smash the patriarchy or some other thing. 
that is completely unbiblical. Now, Scripture does give us examples and has descriptive language concerning aspects of God that uh, have language that we would associate more with motherly virtues or qualities and traits, like nourishing and nurturing and nursing and comforting, right? There's language like that in the prophetic literature. Uh, We know also in our study through Proverbs, right, that wisdom is personified as a woman, as in, and that was an, an instrument of teaching, an implement of teaching to try to convey uh, from, from Solomon to his son how he should pursue and seek lady wisdom because she's the most beautiful thing in all of creation to possess. And we know that Jesus Christ is the sum of all wisdom, right? But nowhere there do we have the liberty to alter the term in which God has revealed himself to his people as father, So we are to call upon God as our Father. Amen? We don't confuse that. I've heard the Pope recently use that language. I've even heard some progressive Christians and ministers use that language as God, our mother, or mother God. Nope. Sorry. We don't do that. Now, you might ask, well, Jesus is directing us to pray directly to the Father. Is it wrong to then pray to Jesus? Or is it wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, the primary pattern that we learn in Scripture of prayer is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, right? Jesus told us to pray in His name, and we pray through the Holy Spirit. He intercedes for us. But does that mean that when we pray to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are excluded? Of course not, right? This is what we understand about the triune God. Three persons, but they're one. To pray to the Father is also to pray to the Son and to the Spirit, right? Now, that knowledge and understanding of the Trinity is a complex doctrine because we understand the Father to be first in order, but that doesn't mean he's first as in higher or superior to the Son and the Spirit. All partake and share of the divine essence. All are God. It's three in one. It's a mystery we don't comprehend. But this aspect, this language of the Father and the Son helps us to understand something about the relationship that exists in the triune God. I love how Martin Luther, teaching on prayer, spoke concerning this. He wrote this, When you call upon Jesus Christ and say, Oh, my dear Lord, God, my Creator and Father, Jesus Christ, Thou one eternal God, you need not worry that the Father and the Holy Spirit will be angry with you. They know that no matter which person you call upon, you call upon all three persons and upon the one God at the same time. For you cannot call upon one person without calling upon the others because the one undivided divine essence exists in all and in each person. All right? So it's not wrong in your praying if you slip, you feel like you slipped up and you went, Holy Spirit, oh, I mean, Father, I mean, I mean, Jesus, I mean, don't worry about that, okay? That doesn't rock God. He knows who he is, all right? So let me give you some things in this aspect of praying to our Father. When you pray to the Father, the first is you need confidence. Confidence of your privileged sonship. Now, I know in our world it's not great to talk about your privilege, or some are more privileged than others. But we do have a privilege. 
We have a privilege as children of God to come to him as our father. Okay? That's our sonship. Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the only reason we can call him Father, but that places us in a unique relationship to God as our Father. And it's a privilege to be called a child of God. And that's not something that should evoke pride in you, but thanksgiving and gratitude and praise to God. You and I have received immeasurable grace. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed. We're no longer under under God's wrath, right? But we've been brought into his family as sons. Not as slaves, as sons. And the reason Jesus tells his disciples to ask the Father anything in his name Right, He says, and the Father will give it to me is because of this extraordinary privilege of being a child of God. I love how right after the resurrection, Mary witnesses the resurrected Christ and she goes to to embrace him and to hug him in John 20, 17. And Jesus says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to, listen to this, My father and your father. To my God and your God. Isn't that awesome? Because of what Jesus did, because of his his death and his resurrection and his ascension, what was he referred to as his father, he now says, no, he's, he's not just my father. He's your father also. And that's awesome. And that's the privilege we have. And we have to exercise in turning to the father in prayer. But when we pray to the father, we should also be confident of our father's compassion. Psalm 103:13 as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's a compassionate father. He's a loving father. Many people's approach to God is like he is some uh, deity that is easily offended and angered with us and we're we're we don't know in a moment if he's for us or against us and Jesus says no 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 no. He's your loving heavenly father, our father, your father, my father. A father who knows our weaknesses, knows our frailty, knows our limitations. Knows that you and I are not indestructible, right? Knows that we are just, we're dust, we're broken, we're frail, we're in need of mercy. And one of the most freeing things you and I can experience in prayer is knowing that we're coming to our Father who knows us exactly as we are, knows us better than we know ourselves, and He loves us and is compassionate towards us. Even when we sin, God doesn't disown us. Even when we've blown it, He doesn't discard us. Like any good father, He can be displeased with us, When we disobey him, like any good father, he will discipline us out of love for us. But isn't it encouraging to know that our sin and our frailty and our weakness doesn't change God's disposition towards us. He remains our father. Despite our transgressions and our errors, he's a loving father. And he looks upon us with compassion. He's a father who always welcomes his children, does not turn them away, doesn't deny them, doesn't disown them, 
even when he has to discipline them. So why stay away from praying to your father? Is it sin? Confess it. Remember that Christ's blood washed away your iniquity and your sin. And if you've received the spirit of adoption, you cannot be unadopted. Once you've been brought in, you cannot be taken out. Jesus himself proclaimed that no one can snatch God's children out of the Father's hands. You can't even unpry yourself from the grip of your loving, compassionate Heavenly Father. So pray. Come before your Father in prayer. But also be confident in your Father's protection. It's a fundamental instinct shared by all good fathers, right? Protecting your kids. It's instinctive. Ariel can get a little loud sometimes in the home. And she'll yell something out. And sometimes my immediate instinct is something's wrong. And I got to leap up to handle business. Only to find out she's just joking about something. But you and I know, right, when we're watching our kids, dads, and they're out and, and they're running towards the street, what is your instinct? They're all right. They ate. They, you, know, they, you know, they can dodge the cars. No, man. Our instinct is to corral them, protect them, and watch over them. This is our father. He protects us. He want, you know, we want to shield our children from dangers and hardships and heartaches. Doesn't God want to do the same thing as our Heavenly Father? There's so many promises in scriptures about the Lord's protection. Too many to even go over. But here just in, in the New Testament, right? 1 Peter 1, 5 tells us that we are kept by the power of God. God's protection extends to his preservation of us throughout the course of this life so that we will make it one day into glory. And without being kept by the power of God, we will never be kept because we can't keep ourselves. Jude 124 tells us he will keep us from stumbling. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. Now, your heavenly father may have left you and forsaken you, but our heavenly father never will. Romans 8.39 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing can separate us. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray, trusting your heavenly Father also protects you. When we're afraid, when something threatens us, we can cry to our Father in confidence of his promises. In times of trouble and fear, call upon him and be confident in his protection and the safekeeping of his children. But also be confident in our Father's provision. We have a Father who answers prayer. That's been the thrust of our series here to ask. He answers prayer. It is the default, not the exception. And I hate sometimes because we think of prayer that way. Like God is resistant and reluctant to answer our prayers. He's not. He's not. He's eager to provide and meet his children's need. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Does that sound like reluctance? 
Does that sound like God's like, mm-mm, not today. They can ask away, but I'm, mm-mm, I'm not in the mood. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? Good things to those who ask him. Isn't that awesome? You have a loving, compassionate, heavenly Father who loves to give good things to his children. That's why Jesus told his disciples, what are you anxious for? What are you worried about? Why are you worrying about so many things? Matthew 6, 32, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He's not unconcerned. He's not removed from your need. Now, when he says here that he, your father knows that you need them all, he's not just saying God has some knowledge about your need. It's not just knowledge. Right? It's, it's, it's not just that he knows. It also means that he cares enough To not just know, but also to do something about it. If we, being evil, do that with our kids, why on earth do we think that our Heavenly Father is going to treat us in a different manner? Like He doesn't care. Like He's not concerned. Like He's reluctant. No, He loves to give good things to His children. He delights in it. So He says, ask away. Ask away. And we've talked about what that means here. We have an understanding of what that means. We ask according to the will of God. We can't ask for something that's going to be destructive to our soul and God's not obligated to give us those things. You as a loving parent don't do that with your kids. Just because your three-year-old wants a switchblade to play with doesn't mean I love him so i got to give it to him. No, that's foolish. We pray according to the will of the Father and He it to us. Ah, oh, God provides for his kids. We can count on his interest and concern. Philippians 4, 6 then tells us, do not be anxious about anything. Oh, man, are we anxious about a lot of things. I've battled with that over the last weeks. Getting anxious and then reminding myself of this. Getting anxious and coming back and reminding myself of this. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But let them be made known. Speak them. Speak to your heavenly Father. He hears and will respond. Our Father. But There's also a second aspect to that preface, isn't there? Who art in heaven, as the King James says. Our Father in heaven. Well, We have a reminder here that not only is our father intimate with his children, that's our relationship to him, but he's also transcendent. The father we approach is not like our approaching our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers are, again, who are subject to our frailties, our limitations, our weaknesses, or our corruptions. Jesus wasn't saying that heaven is the location of the Father. It's not a physical place that the Father is far removed from us. When we pray, sometimes we look up like, well, that's heaven, you know, or something like that. That's not what he's telling us here. What do we know about God? 
Is he in one physical place? No. He's omnipresent. There's no physical location that God is tied to, right? What does he mean by this phrase, our Father in heaven? Well, not only does praying our Father remind us of our relationship and speak to our relationship to the one whom we are addressing, but it's a reminder exactly of who he is. He's the God of all glory. It is about his majesty and power. We're not approaching a human being. We are approaching the king of all things, the creator, the God of glory, the maker of all things, the one who is transcendent. That means he's above all things, beyond all things. God rules. From heaven, we know we could say that's where his throne is, but he is not limited in location. Not at all. Through our prayer is presented in childlike confidence. Well, what does the tone of our prayer need to be? Respectful. Reverent. Not flippant or casual. When you come to your father in prayer, he's not sky daddy or the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs like some idiots like to say. He is God. He's in heaven. Guess where you are? You're on earth. You're of the earth. This is the dust being flippant and casual with the king of the universe. How dare we? I, 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 get, I get, that is like, I get so annoyed when I hear people refer to God in such a casual, flippant manner. Who do you think you're talking to? You think he's obligated to hear you because he's daddy God? No, he's not. We have a special relationship with God. We are children of God. But he's not your earthly father. So while we're intimate, we have this relationship of intimacy, we never forget who God is and to whom we are approaching here. He is in heaven. We are on earth. A.W. Pink writing on prayer and this particular preface of the Lord's Prayer, writes, what a blessed balance this gives to the previous phrase, this phrase, our Father in heaven, but the previous phrase being our Father. If that tells us of God's goodness and grace, this, the phrase, in heaven, speaks of his greatness and majesty. If that teaches us of the nearness and dearness of his relationship to us, this announces his infinite elevation above us. If the words our Father inspire confidence and love, then the words our, who art in heaven should fill us with humility and awe. These are the two things that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first without the second tends towards unholy familiarity. The second without the first produces coldness and dread. By combining them together, we are preserved from both evils as we duly contemplate both mercy and might of God his unfathomable love, and his immeasurable loftiness. Let's not forget who we're coming to. So our approach is he is our father. Privilege that you and I get to enjoy in coming to him, knowing that he loves, cares for us, provides for us, protects us, hears us, will respond. But he is God. Now, good fathers, 
are both adored and feared. And when we talk about fear, sometimes we're thinking of like some terror, right? Our children should be free to come to us, right? Free to run up to us, free to crawl on our laps. But also understand that there are lines, right? There are boundaries you don't cross. Now, in our day and age, it's very common to hear children backtalk their parents, insult their parents, call them names with no consequences, Right? Very smart, isn't it? We don't come to God that way. We don't approach God that way. We are free to come to God. Joyfully come to God. He is our Father. Right? But there, but there is a balance presented here in the prayer. We address God intimately as our Father, but we immediately recognize His infinite greatness and supremacy with the addition of in heaven. Fills us with humility, awe, and a right and proper fear of the Lord. We no longer have the terror of approaching God. Christ has removed that from us. And we've been brought into the family of God. So we come to him remembering who he is. So pray with a reverential fear. Again, not fear like terror. We don't ever have to wonder how God is going to respond to us as his children. That should never cross our minds. He loves us and he cares for us, right? We are his children Right. Um, some of you may have had a father that when you approached him, didn't know how he was going to respond. Is he going to be angry? You always had to kind of check the mood, pick the right time to come to him because you didn't know if you were going to get backslapped or or if, or, if, or if kind daddy was there. You know, you never have to worry about that with our heavenly father. OK, that's not what the fear of the Lord about, because that kind of approach, right, would make. This, this inconsistency with the character of the Father, right? So we don't need to flinch uh, in his presence, right, or cower in terror. But we need to reverentially fear God because he's our Father. In fact, Peter kind of goes into this in First Peter chapter 1, 17 and 19. And if you call on him as, look, Father, if you call on him as Father, remembering, though, who he is, who judges impartially according to each, one, each one's deeds... Right? He is the just judge. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right? So, you call on him as father, but who is he? He's the just judge. who will judge the living and the dead. How are we to conduct ourselves? With the fear of the Lord. With the fear of the Lord, right? It motivates us. It's a, it's a good and proper motivation for the child of God. It is good and right, fathers, to discipline your children. That's not unloving. That's very loving. They should know that you love them. That they're free to come to you. But when they transgress, Right? It motivates us toward obedience and wanting to please the Lord and keep us from presumption. When we pray our Father in heaven and we remember our aim in prayer is always the glory of God. Right? And secondly, pray with complete trust in our Father's power and goodness. Let me ask you, what need do you have today that God is incapable or unwilling to help you with? 
There is none, right? You have a spiritual problem. You need wisdom. You have unsaved loved ones, family problems, difficulties with your kids, your marriage. You have financial needs. You consider the needs of our church, of our community that we need to be praying for. What need do you have that God is incapable or unwilling to help you with? No, there isn't a single one that he's unwilling or incapable to help us with. Your Father in heaven is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ask or think. And our Lord invites you and I in this prayer to pray to the one who is both willing and able to help because he is our Father. He's our Father. Now, you don't come like a spoiled brat, a spoiled child demanding or ordering God to do things for you. We don't approach him like a disrespectful child in a flippant manner, like God is one of our buddies. No, we come to him with childlike confidence, boldness, reverence, and godly fear, trusting in his power and goodness. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones concerning prayer. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul, before which all pales into insignificance. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. You and I have to remember that in prayer. We are coming face to face with God. And guess who this God is? He is our Father who loves us, cares for us, who protects us, who provides for us and is always ready and willing to help us in our time of need.